Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting either side of the breach. Tonight's episode sees the return of Molly Squidpidge, Kirai Ankoku, and everyone's favourite decapitated head, Philip Toomers. It's an extra long one today, so we'll get right to it after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by the Grey Lord. If you appreciate the finer things in life, but you'd rather not have it spread all over the gossip pages of disreputable newspapers the next morning, come to Malafo's finest gentleman's club. The Grey Lord is the venue of choice for alcohol, gambling and women. Or, if your wife is listening, for wholesome discussion of family values and community betterment. Our doors are open 365 days a year, so come on down for a night you'll never forget. Last Call at the Grey Lord It was dark and dank and miserable, which suited Molly perfectly. Where a hard and vigorous rain might have washed the streets and alleys of Malifaux clean, all the brooding clouds had managed to produce was an insipid, feathery shimmer that gradually soaked into the old city's brickwork, turning cobbles slimy underfoot and drawing a ripe, feckened stench from the gutters and side streets. Molly's normally explosive hair had wilted into a sodden heap about her neck and shoulders, and even her defiant optimism had grown wet and despondent as day rolled into night. She didn't really feel the cold any more, which was probably the only positive thing one could take from being undead, but the pall of misery she would normally have resisted vigorously had grown heavier of late, and she was finding it increasingly difficult to remain upbeat. One reason for this was the collection of misfits and surgical rejects that tended to follow her around at a respectful distance. She wasn't certain when it had first started, but had begun to notice them more and more frequently when she walked the city streets at night. If she was attracting them, it certainly wasn't something she was doing consciously. But each night there seemed to be more of them. They kept to the shadows, perhaps from fear of rejection should their misshapen forms be revealed by gaslight. And all of them exuded the same despondent air, like a cluster of beaten dogs, all hovering nervously for a recalcitrant lick of a master's hand. At times, the bashful gazes that followed her progress through the night held an almost messianic air which troubled her. It was evident from their behaviour that they regarded her as a champion of their cause, which somehow made her feel worse. Though she felt sympathy for their plight and their terrible, secretive existences in the shadows thrown by the living world, she also felt some alarm that they clearly viewed her as being in the same boat, which in turn made her feel deluded and miserable. The real problem, though, was Philip. He hadn't spoken to her for three days on account of his new body. Molly couldn't see what the problem was. It had started as a woolly hat, but Molly had discovered a tremendous sense of purpose and well-being from crafting something beneficial for a friend, and she began to elaborate. Although her knitting ability was mediocre at best, she went on to create an entire small knitted body that hung from the brim of the hat 
complete with little arms and legs which were stuffed with newspaper. When she showed the finished article to him, Philip declared in no uncertain terms that he would be seen dead again before he would be seen wearing that grotesque carbuncle. Molly reasoned that he would probably warm to it after a bit, and even if he didn't, she'd put a lot of effort into making it, and the least he could do was wear it for one day. Besides, voicing your dislike for something was all very well when you were in disembodied head, but that's about the limit of your resistance. It's not like you can take it off yourself. So Molly had stuffed him into the knitted hat body and settled him in the tatty old pram she kept for rattling him around the city. She thought he looked rather cute with his little woolen legs and feet sticking out under his chin, but Philip was positively mortified. He clamped his jaw shut and refused to say another word, instead shooting Molly glares filled with venomous reproach. In the end, she had taken the hat body off him and thrown it away, but Philip refused to relent and maintained his stubborn silence. She was hurt by his callous rejection of her gift, and for the last few days their friendship, normally a stable and dependable thing in Molly's otherwise erratic and unpredictable life, had been strained. She had given up trying to speak to him, and with nothing better to do, silently wheeled him around the streets each night, like the world's gloomiest nursemaid tending the world's ugliest baby. Tonight's meandering ramble had taken her to a knot of narrow alleys behind the slaughterhouse district, and glints of white animal bone poked from the refuse piled against the alley walls. Bold, sleek rats moved openly through these alleys, grown huge and muscular from generations reared on raw beef and mutton, more than a match for any enterprising cat. They paused in their foraging to watch Molly and her pram squeak by, but showed little interest. Molly stopped at a star-shaped intersection marked by the hanging remnants of a poster mottled with lichen and age. The rain, such as it was, still fell in soft, misty billows, beading on the pram's rusty metal frame and the bare flesh of her forearms. "'Well, where do you want to go now?' she asked the pram. The dark interior remained silent and somehow still managed to convey a sense of disapproval. "'What about down to the river?' she asked. "'You like it there. We could sit and watch the bodies floating past.' More silence from the pram. Or Comagin Square, she continued. There might be some flowers left over. That would brighten things up, wouldn't it? Philip said nothing. Molly sighed. Oh, come on, Philip. Don't be such a baby. The silence was suddenly impregnated with a sense of scoffing indignation that reminded Molly she had been wheeling him around in a pram for the last three days. A slender, willowy girl walked past the alley mouth some thirty yards in front of them. She was so pale-skinned and wore such diaphanous robes that Molly first took her for a spectre. The girl vanished out of sight, and Molly was left with an afterimage of flowing silks, long ebony hair, and a heart-shaped Asian face made of porcelain. She was still staring at the empty alley mouth when three more figures appeared. No grace or elegance this time. Three heavy, grubby men in scuffed work boots and thick overcoats with collars turned up against the night chill. One gripped a bottle of spirits that was mostly empty, and he wiped at his mouth with the back of a hand as he followed the girl, an unpleasant glitter in his eyes. His friends followed suit. A short one with a vast gut and a burly man-bull with no neck and tight curly hair that grew down into thick lamb chops across his cheeks. As this last intruder left the other side of the alley, his alcohol-flushed face rotated one way and then the other, in the time-honored manner of hoodlums everywhere, scoping for eyewitnesses before performing an ugly deed. As he twisted, the glint of a knife appeared in his belt. Molly's expression hardened. It took no stretch of the imagination to understand that the Asian girl was in immediate and life-threatening peril. 
Seemingly in response to this recognition, a patient shadow detached itself from the alley behind her and lumbered closer, the largest of her faithful followers. She didn't need to look to feel the strength in the tree-trunk-sized arms or sense the layers of stitching that snaked like ivy over the creature's body, holding the musculature of a dozen men together in a single monstrous form. Unbidden, the flesh titan began to stride after the three men, opening and closing its massive hands in anticipation. Grabbing Philip's pram, Molly followed, determined to meet out punishment befitting the three villains. A high-pitched squeal echoed down the alley, and Molly broke into a run, overtaking her ponderous associate. She hadn't expected the men to attack so soon, but there was still time to intervene before the girl was harmed. She swerved around the corner in pursuit of the assailants, Philip's pram up on two wheels and found a violent turmoil engulfing the alley ahead. It was not the girl being assailed by the three burly men, however. It was two men hanging in the air, kicking and squealing like pigs while they were eviscerated by... something. It had no clear shape. An incorporeal whirlwind formed of knives, teeth and eyes filled with rage. Organs, flesh, bone and blood flew the length of the alley as the two screaming thugs disintegrated, spraying their innards in all directions for fifty feet. The third man, the lamb-chop bull, was running back along the alley towards Molly, his expression that of someone whose grasp of reality has temporarily slipped. In his derangement, he made the mistake of running more or less directly at Molly, which her looming agent evidently considered too immediate a threat to be ignored. A flesh fist the size of an anvil swooped over Molly's head, and the third man was smashed into the brick wall of the alley with enough force to pulp his innards and burst him like a blood-gorged mosquito. Blood slopped into Philip's pram, and finally breaking his three-day silence, the disembodied head voiced his disgust. "'I say,' he moaned. "'What's going on out there? Was that really necessary?' Molly wiped at her face, patted her huge charge reassuringly, and focused on events in the alley. The whirlwind was losing its force, diminishing steadily until the girl became visible once more. Her arms upraised, her eyes the color of albumen. As the gnashing spirit shapes evaporated, the girl's lashing hair and clothing settled, and her dark chestnut pupils returned. In seconds, she was just a slim Asian girl once again, albeit standing in ankle-deep human chum. It was at this point that Molly realized the alley ended in a loading dock behind them. The girl had led the three men into a dead end. It had been an ambush right enough, but the men had made the mistake of thinking they were the predators. The girl lifted her blood-spattered kimono and began to pick her way through the gore on tiny bare feet, with no more concern than one would display while using stepping stones to cross a shallow stream. Molly watched this dainty figure make her way unhurriedly out of the alley mouth, rather envious of her inherent poise and dignity. She glanced down at her ratty dress and scuffed shoes, very conscious of her poor cloth in the presence of this silk vision, blood-spattered or otherwise. The girl came to a halt a few feet away, looking up at Molly. She was a full head shorter, tiny actually, with perfectly formed dull features. But the specks of warm blood on her neck and cheek were stark against her milky flesh, and Molly could sense the turmoil and fury that paced behind those big, placid brown eyes. Hello, Molly said, uncertain of how to proceed. Kambamwa, the girl said in response with a slight nod of her head. Her gleaming black hair moved imperceptibly. Her face was very still, almost apathetic. Are you all right? Molly asked. Then, those men didn't hurt you, was out of her mouth before she realized the absurdity of the question. Watashi wagenkidis, the girl said with another bob of her head. 
Molly hesitated. It was possible that this girl knew no English, in which case further conversation was going to prove difficult. The girl leaned over and looked into Molly's pram. To her credit, her expression didn't change when she found a blood-splattered severed head scowling back at her instead of the expected infant. Philip was so startled that he babbled, "'Oh, how very nice to meet you, miss. Please excuse my appearance. I was most unfortunately drenched.' Next, she regarded the hulking shape over Molly's shoulder, which shrank back at the passive scrutiny. Finally, the girl turned her attention back to Molly. "'I like your friends,' she said." Gart Ward held the cheroot between the first and second fingers of his right hand and picked a fleck of tobacco from between his teeth with his left. He liked the Burmese cheroots best, and because this was known, a box always came through the breach with each month's delivery from his associate's earthside. This lot was especially fresh and fragrant. These are good, he said. Eli looked pleased. He was a dutiful son and tried hard to earn his father's favor, to the extent of making regular trips back through the breach to make sure Ward's influence and legacy were maintained. One of these trips had caused his face to blister and crease like a celluloid film over a lit match as the train thunkered through the breach, but Eli hadn't seemed particularly concerned. He'd never been what you might have called handsome to begin with, and in his father's line of work there was never a shortage of female companionship who knew better than to show their revulsion. How about the rest of the cargo? A good haul this month, Pa, Eli said. Three twisted, another two popped. We got three keepers and another nine they'll go fine in the likes of White Reach or Jamestown. Ward Senior nodded. A respectable haul. There was the inevitable wastage when live cargo was brought through the breach. The twisters and aptly named poppers were unavoidable. But three keepers was good for a single delivery. Slim, fine-featured, and smooth-skinned, they'd bring in a good profit once they'd been cleaned up and properly instructed. His regulars routinely went into a bidding frenzy when new girls first went on the books. The plain, heavy-limbed women went straight to the mining towns, sold in batches to the inevitable hospitality houses and billiard rooms that always materialized out of thin air in the wake of prospectors and railway laborers across the country, where the customers were less discerning. The mining towns made him a reasonable profit, but the real money was made in the city. Two or three well-trained girls with the right looks and sass would turn over more scrip in a month than Gart could make in a year of cattle training with the miners. He had spent many years making the right sort of connections that kept him in touch with the real movers and shakers of Malifaux, men that carried the bureaucratic weight of the city on their shoulders and liked more than a cigar and a brandy to help them relax for the evening. Ward had found himself unofficially appointed as a director of entertainment in several influential gentlemen's clubs in the city and his club, the Grey Lord, kept its doors open 365 days of the year to ensure there was always alcohol, gambling, and women to be had at any hour of the day or night. Not that any riffraff could wander in off the street, of course. The Grey Lord kept its clientele respectable through ruthless door staff and hefty prices at the bar, and only the obscenely wealthy would even consider venturing near one of the poker or roulette tables, which was just the way Ward liked it. There were frequently private parties, Closed-door, invite-only affairs where some of the very highest echelons of Malifaux society could meet and savor the specific delights of the Grey Lord without discovery or recrimination. These events was where Ward garnered his real power, gained through accommodation without accusation. He had even hosted a few events attended by the Governor-General himself, which seemed to have placed an unspoken seal of approval on Ward's activities, and the Grey Lord's business had strengthened significantly. 
Ward was careful to avoid the authorities and any involvement in any messy public debacles. He employed his own men for every aspect of his industry and kept the women out of the public eye at all times. They were neither seen nor heard until they had been properly conditioned, and even then it was only within the walls of the Grey Lord until they were sold off elsewhere. He understood that his business, though massively illegal and reprehensible, was tolerated because of this discretion, and of course because of the services he provided for those with the script to afford them, which was also just the way Ward liked it. Where are they now? Ward asked, rolling the cheroot in his fingers to test its springiness. They're off the train and in wagons, Eli responded. They'll be here within the hour. Ward's office and private apartments were on the top floor of the Grey Lord, an arrangement that suited him very well. He liked to keep a close eye on his club and leave the more menial tasks to his deputies and his son, and rarely left now for any reason other than to meet a new client. The club itself was sprawled over four floors with gambling dens, bars, a restaurant, and multiple private function rooms. The basement levels were restricted access, where only his employees were permitted. This is where the storage cellars and the women's residences were located, and the holding cells for new girls who hadn't completed their training. Make sure the loading bay is ready, Ward said. This was quite unnecessary. Eli had inherited his father's caution and was as, if not more, thorough in matters of preparation and discretion. But Gart believed it never hurt to reinforce good business practice. His son nodded and headed for the door, his heavy boots silent on the thick plush carpeting. He paused at the door and looked back. Any preference for the demonstration this time? he asked. Ward Senior had given this some thought. Gertrude, he said. Gertrude was one of the oldest women left in the Grey Lord, past thirty and starting to lose her looks. The girls burned out fast with the long nights, the cigarettes and the alcohol and the false smiles, and Gertrude was quickly falling out of favour. She frequently got sloppy from the drink and had embarrassed a few of his more well-connected clients, which was bad for his reputation. It was only a matter of time before she became a liability. She would be more useful now as a demonstration to the newcomers. Ward had developed a routine where one of the serving girls had her throat slit in front of the new blood. It was the first thing they saw when they arrived at the Grey Lord. It served to illustrate how business was conducted at the club while getting rid of the tired flesh that was nearing the end of its usefulness. Besides, it kept the other girls on their toes, knowing that if they didn't keep the clients happy, it might be them on the end of Eli's straight razor next time. Three birds with one stone. Ward's business model was a masterclass in economy. They had walked together through the midnight lanes of Malifaux, Molly with her pram and vast shadow, and Karai with her solemnity and poise. They talked. At first, only a few stilted pleasantries, but as Molly realized her tiny companion's English was quite excellent, the trickle of conversation became a torrent. Karai listened politely while the pale woman spoke about herself, about the grumpy head in her pram, about the huge shape tailing her loyally, and eventually about her former master, Seamus. Karai had not expected much from this strange vision in a soiled dress and bedraggled hair, and so she was surprised when everything Molly told her rang true. She listened with growing interest to the woman's tragic story, shared her anger at the selfish and reprehensible Seamus, felt her pain when Molly talked of the life she could have had, and knew the depths of her longing when she hinted at the loneliness and despair that threatened to engulf her at every turn. Since the death of her lover... 
Karai had thought all the humanity was burned out of her. She had been certain that the remaining shell held nothing but hate and vengeance. Listening now to Molly's earnest account, she felt twinges of empathy and an all-too-familiar ache as Molly talked about never having had someone to call her own. Always undemonstrative and controlled, Karai made no outward indication she'd been affected, but she felt a growing kinship with this unfortunate woman and saw her as a fellow refugee of the emotional maelstrom that was Malifaux. When, eventually, Molly had talked herself out, they just walked. Karai found she enjoyed this companionable silence with no agenda or purpose. It felt good simply to be with someone she could relate to. Finally, as the dawn was beginning to creep over the rooftops, and they had walked far into the slums past huddled clusters of street sleepers, Karai spoke. I loved a man once, she said. He was taken from me. His father ordered him killed because he perceived our union was wrong. Because I disgraced him. Molly said nothing, but Karai could tell the other woman was listening. I had a life worth living once. I had love. But that love died with him, and all I have left is anger. I'm sorry, Karai. The girl regarded her newfound friend, her expression neutral. They say it is better to have loved than lost, she said, while terrible shadows moved behind her eyes. They lie. That they do, Molly nodded. The sun inched higher into the sky, and the first tendrils of warmth curled around their bare flesh. The misty rain had withered away at some point before dawn, though neither of them could recall exactly when, and now they stood by the river, which was swollen from the wet night. I suppose I'd better get going, Molly said, not really wanting to. Karai nodded. Machira, she said. Will you be around later? I thought we could maybe meet up this evening. Karai considered this. Molly's company had been most welcome, and besides, she had nothing better to do. I would like that, she said. Molly beamed and clapped her hands. They hadn't meant to get involved. It just happened that way. Molly and Karai had met by the river as the sun was going down and had taken a pleasant stroll through the city. Molly had chatted about her work as a journalist, and Karai, having nothing comparable to discuss, enjoyed the pleasant fiction of imagining herself in the role. They were interrupted by a scowling vulture-like man hauling a sobbing child from a shanty doorway by one arm. A sturdy woman came bustling out behind them, her face pale, hands flapping with impotent concern. "'You leave her be, Jonah,' the woman said with mock threat. "'You leave her be now!' "'Shut your trap!' the man snarled raising a gnarly hand as if to slap her. The woman shied away. She's of an age. She can hold a broom. Another year, for pity's sake, the woman pleaded, hovering nearby. She's not even five years yet. You'll work, eh? The man said, shaking the girl, who continued to bawl. You'll work hard for your Uncle Jonah, eh? Squirm up them chimneys like a good and you will. Earn your old uncle some scrip. The soot, Jonah, the woman was saying. It gets all inside him, chokes him up. I've seen it, Jonah. Let it be, won't you? Let it be another year. Bah, said Jonah, turning his back. Another year and she'll have grown. Can't fit up a chimney when you're all knees and elbows. Nah, she starts now while she's little enough. The woman looked distraught, but made no move to try and wrestle what was presumably her daughter away from the beaky man. Why don't you let the girl go, Molly said, frowning at the man. He turned a yellowy eye on her and barked a single laugh. Why don't you... said Jonah, the latter half of the sentence being cut off by the enormous seven-fingered hand that closed over his head, lifting him into the air while the girl and her mother gawped. 
Molly smiled up at the giant flesh construct standing in the shadows, who she decided to name Archie. He certainly looked like an Archie. Thanks, Archie, she said. Would you mind? She gestured at the woman's house. They waited while the huge construct ducked under the low door, taking the kicking and squirming Jonah with him. What's your name, sweetling? Molly asked, leaning over and smoothing the hair of the startled girl. Emily, miss, said Emily, remembering her manners and offering a short curtsy. Well, Emily, said Molly, while crunching and snapping noises came through the squint doorway behind them. I don't think you and your mama need to worry about cleaning any chimneys for a while. Except for one, maybe. Archie ducked back out into the street, wiping his massive hands with Jonah's coat. Emily's mother simply gave a wide-eyed stare and trembled. Sorry about any mess, Molly said as they moved on. She suspected it would take substantial effort and no small amount of scrubbing to get Uncle Jonah cleaned out of their chimney flue. It sounded as though Archie had rammed him up there pretty good. Pinky had suspected it was going to be a slow night, but even he was surprised at how dead the streets were. There had been a persistent rumor over the last week or so about some of the slum locals going missing, or meeting a sticky end at the hands of an unknown party. Fast Pete and Big Mike had turned up in an alley behind a lumberyard a few nights ago, reduced to chunks no bigger than a man's fist. Fortunately, both of Big Mike's fists were tattooed, which made his identification easier, and as the pair were inseparable and four boots had been found with the feet still in them, it was generally agreed that both men had met their collective maker. He'd also heard that Del Rey the Lone Shark had been pureed in a similar manner, along with most of his goons over at Wright Peak. Three other pimps had also met sticky ends in various parts of the slums, most of whom Pinky knew personally. It seemed that all kinds of lowlife in the slums were being targeted. Some of the rumors suggested two women were responsible, but that was just absurd. Even old beaky Jonah Clough, the nasty sweepmaster who kept an iron grip over the trade through most of the guild district, had apparently been folded in half and stuffed up one of his own chimneys. While an ironic demise, it was still one that Pinky was anxious to avoid. And he wasn't the only one judging by how quiet the streets were tonight. His whores stood around, cold and wrapped in shawls, looking miserable and bored. Hardly a gent had gone by in the last half hour, but wasn't in a hurry to get somewhere else fast. Don't just stand there, he snapped, stepping down from the gas streetlight where he habitually slouched and watched his girls at work. You think you're not paying your cut tonight? Think again. I'll have my money one way or another, so you best get out there and earn it. The women, pale face to start with through an application of powder, turned paler still. But Pinky, there's not a single feller out there from Red Street to Commodian Square, one of them protested. If there's no fellas, there's no work and no script to be had. Pinky rested his thumbs on his stout leather belt and the woman blanched. He wasn't above taking his belt to them if he thought they were holding out or not working hard enough. And for repeat offenders, a sharp knife hung from that belt. They could see the horn handle now jutting out under the hem of his short wool coat. That's because you ain't looking hard enough, Pinky growled. You expect me to do everything for you? You want business dropped in your lap? Ain't me who expects it dropped in their lap, the woman said by way of retort. You want us to pull script out of thin air, you do? Pinky raised his eyebrows. That's so, he said amiably. But the woman sensed she'd gone too far and tried to make amends. I'll get your money, Pinky love, she said. Just give me a little time is all. You'll get my money, he agreed, unbuckling his thick belt. You just need a proper incentive. Are you going to beat that woman? A small, precise voice asked him. There was an Asian woman standing behind him. 
wearing an elaborate silk kimono. Her black hair was straight as a plumb line and hung down around her shoulders, framing a pale face and huge eyes. Clear off out of it, he said, half amused. There she want me to beat you too. You are welcome to try, the little woman said. He drew his belt slowly and wrapped it around his fist, leaving about two feet hanging to a heavy engraved buckle. You're a sweet-looking little thing, he said. I'll try not to mess up your face. Then maybe we'll talk about you working for me. The girl didn't react, nor did she move. Her hands were behind her back as if clasped together. Pinky was slightly unnerved by this slender vision of composure, but he swung at her just the same, determined not to lose face with his women watching. The newcomer moved quickly, sliding back out of reach of his belt and delivering a quick counterattack where metal flashed. He watched in dismay as his belt buckle spun off to clatter into the middle of the street. She must have cut through the belt with a knife from somewhere. Only he could see the belt was still attached to the buckle, laying on the cobbles like a flat brown snake, and there at the end was the loop he'd wrapped around his fist, with his fist still in it. He looked down at his arm and saw red meat and white bone. My, my hand, he murmured. The slender woman was holding a huge pair of gardening shears, evidently sharpened to a razor edge from the way they glinted in the gaslight. There was barely a smear of blood on them. What goes next, she asked in that same deadpan tone. Otashi wa kanishinai. You choose. No, wait, wait. He backed away on suddenly infirm legs, gripping his stump tightly to try and stem the pumping blood. Wait a minute. Don't be shy, the little woman said, following him step for step. Under the kimono, her feet were tiny and bare. Shall I choose? Wait, Pinky groaned, backing into a narrow alcove where the door had long since been bricked up. Wait, it's not me you want. It's not? she asked. I must be mistaken. Was it someone else who threatened to beat me a moment ago? Not me. I'm a nobody, he babbled. He knew that if he uttered his next words, it was merely a stay of execution. That if this crazy Asian woman didn't kill him, the man he was about to name would. You want who I get the horse from? You want the man at the top? And who would that be? She asked in that same incurious tone, still advancing. Ward, he said, head spinning from shock and blood loss. Got Ward. That's the man you want. Never heard of him, the woman said dismissively. Of course not, Pinky continued with a tinge of desperation creeping into his tone. He pays a lot of people a lot of script to keep it that way. Finally, the woman stopped. He seemed to be listening. Keep talking. He brings them in from Earthside. Wagons full of them. He has clients, see? Powerful guild men. Industrialists. He makes big money. Has a whole operation going on. Brings what in? There was a suggestion of annoyance in the woman's perfect porcelain features. Women, Pinky said. He kidnaps them, smuggles them through the breach, puts them to work in his club, dozens of them. Hundreds. I buy the wasters. Wasters, he echoed. Too old or worn out to meet his standards. He sells them to guys like me for a discount price. I can get a good few years out of them before drink or disease kills them. Either that or they get shipped off to the mining towns. The woman was still for a long time while he panted, watching those gleaming shears. Where can I find this Gart Ward? she asked eventually. The Grey Lord. That's his place. But you won't get within a hundred yards of him. He's got a whole private army and a year of just about every official in the city. Even the Governor-General himself. 
Pinky couldn't help a touch of pride creeping into his voice at being associated with such a man. Something rippled across the woman's face at the mention of the Governor-General. Then it went still as a pond. Okay? Okay, Pinky continued, thinking he had probably just enough strength left to stagger to Quincy Melville's place, a veterinarian in Farrier's Way before he passed out from blood loss. Then the first train out of Malifaux before Ward discovered he'd opened his mouth. Now leave me alone, you crazy bitch! Takemaki, she said. I haven't finished killing you yet. Pinky's eyes widened as the woman lunged and her razor shears snapped shut. His own decapitated torso spun past his eyes, and then the world began wheeling around and around like a Catherine wheel. The last sound he heard was the screaming of his horse. How many? Gut Ward asked again. He was leaning on a polished walnut rail near the station bar deep within the Grey Lord. Behind him and gently illuminated by coloured gas lamps was a triple-shelved bar stocking every spirit, wine and champagne that could be obtained in Malifaux. Immaculate women in lace underthings served behind it, floating from one patron to the next with the same welcoming smile. Only their eyes suggested anything different. On the other side of the rail was a recessed floor covered in red shag carpeting, where gaming tables were arrayed in a horseshoe pattern. Wealthy men in various states of inebriation shouted, laughed, and swigged from crystal glasses, while their pocketbooks were gradually emptied by the dealers at the tables and the smiling women that cruised through the smoky crowds. It was a busy night. Four, Marcella said at his elbow, watching the floor. Four buyers from the slum district had turned up dead over the last few nights, dismembered or mangled by someone that apparently held a grudge. They were useful for shifting some of the rougher stock when Ward no longer felt they were of sufficient caliber to represent his club. Should I be worried? he asked. Pimps are like rats, Marcellus said. Kill one, there's two more in his place come the next day. Any word on why? Marcellus shrugged in a way that suggested it wasn't anything to be concerned about. Some sort of territorial dispute, most likely. There's been a lot of unrest in the slum district recently. Probably a new gang carving out a patch for itself. Well, I don't like it. We bring our deliveries through the slum district. I want some gang of yahoos disrupting my business. Send a couple of boys over. Find out who's kicking up all the dust and settle them down. I don't care who holds what street, just so long as my supply runs aren't disrupted. Marcellus nodded and was about to leave when Ward stopped him. Send Eli, he said. You spend so much time earthside, I don't want the locals forgetting who he is. He'll run this place one day, and for that he'll need respect. Marcellus nodded again and vanished into the crowd of revelers. Molly was sitting on a wooden loading dock, swinging her legs and humming to herself. Her eyes stood a short distance away, sharpening her shears. They had dispatched so many villains and ne'er-do-wells now, that neither could deny it had become the primary purpose of their nightly meetings, although they would probably have tried to. What they were doing felt right. They were just uncomfortable coming out and saying it. I don't think they're sharp enough, Molly commented dryly. You've only been at it for half an hour. Karai cocked her head to one side and what Molly now interpreted as amusement and continued to sharpen. Molly wasn't sure she'd ever met a more traumatized individual than little Karai and Koku. Her voice never changed pitch or tone. Her facial expression never changed more than a fraction. It was difficult to read what she was thinking and even now, after several weeks, Molly was still mostly in the dark about her companion's emotional state. Her thoughts wandered to what Karai had told her about the pimp from the other night and the man called Gart Ward. 
She was astonished that such barbarity had been going on in Malifaux for so long, and she had known nothing about it. She knew what Karai was thinking, that she wanted to go to this Grey Lord club and cut Ward off at the knee, but the pimp's warning about his contacts and the simple fact that he'd kept such a dreadful enterprise completely subterranean for so long made her wary. It would have taken either a lot of scrip or a lot of influence to sweep such an operation under the carpet, and she wondered what can of worms they would be opening if they tangled with him. Flying in the face of this caution was Molly's outrage that women could be treated so inhumanely, traded and sold like cattle. She itched to bring this man Ward to account. She became aware of two heavily built men walking into the loading area from an alley to her left. Another two came down the adjoining alley from the right. Three more men appeared from straight ahead, all of them strolling with fake casualness, as though each had been out for an evening saunter, and all arrived at this juncture at the same time out of sheer happenstance. All, bar one, looked like hired thugs, and competent ones at that. Only the eighth man seemed an individual, slighter than his companions, though just as tall, and with a badly scarred face that might have been burned at some point in the past. The men all stopped in a rough semicircle around Molly and Karai, who had her back to them and was continuing to sharpen her shears, either oblivious to or unconcerned by their appearance. Evening, ladies, the burned man said, tipping his hat. Molly could see that the quality of his clothing was substantially better than his companions, and his nails were clean. Some sort of gentry, although his manners suggested otherwise. How are we this evening? Her eye finally turned to look, her shears held in one hand, the whetstone in the other. The burned man laughed when he saw them. My word, he said. I'd heard it from more than a few miles already, but I still didn't quite believe it until this moment. This little one here, he said, looking at his assembled bodyguards. This little one took the head off Pinky Greer, and one snip, they say. The other men chuckled, not unkindly. It appeared that Pinky Greer was not well thought of among the burned man's peers. Ladies, allow me to introduce myself, the burned man said. My name is Eli Ward. Molly sat up straighter. Ward, he'd said. A brother, possibly even a son, although it was difficult to place his age with such a mottled face. Karai conversely returned to sharpening her shears. And you are? Eli prompted. Confused, Molly said. What are you doing here, Mr. Ward? I'm here representing a business concern, he replied, replacing his hat. You ladies have been causing quite a stir in the slums over the last few weeks, and we have a vested interest in the district. Oh? We make regular shipments through this area, and it would be unfortunate if they were disrupted for any reason. I'm here to ensure that doesn't happen. Molly was well aware what these shipments consisted of, but she kept her face neutral. And how do you propose to do that? she asked. Eli Ward made a placating gesture. Whatever disputes you have in the slum are your business, of course. My only concern is the safe passage of our shipments. I'd be more than happy to arrange compensation for your time if you could guarantee it. Added to which, you'd have the gratitude of Mr. Ward, who, although you may not know it, is a very influential man. I have heard the name of Gart Ward before, Karai said, turning to face the men. Another pimp told me about him. Perhaps your friend, Pinky. Another pimp, Eli repeated, his smile evaporating. Did you just... You made a mistake in coming here, Karai cut in, opening her shears like a hungry mouth. None of you will leave alive. You're out of your mind, Eli scoffed. You'll not worry, Eli Ward, she continued, sliding forward on bare feet. I will tell your father how you died, just before I kill him. Eli was no longer listening. 
Try not to damage the face, he was telling his brutes. She'll be a nice little learner once we've knocked some sense into her. What about that one? One of the thugs asked, pointing at the smiling Molly who was still swinging her legs. Eli turned and gave the undead girl a professional look. Pretty face, he conceded. A bit pale, though. Bring her along. I'll decide later. Thank you kindly, Molly said. She was happy to accept any compliment on her looks, however backhanded. I'll let you buy me a drink if you survive. A grim shadow with Karai's face descended on the men, lopping off limbs and heads almost faster than Molly's eye could follow. When the shadow was finished, it dissipated, and Karai arranged all the heads in a little pile with Eli's on top, an expression of astonishment fixed on his face. Pity, Molly said to no one in particular as Karai surveyed the blood spattered down the length of her kimono. I rather like that one. With the death of Eli, Molly understood that it was only a matter of time before they banged heads with his father and the weight of his entire organization. Given the time to marshal his forces, Ward would undoubtedly bring his bureaucratic influence into the fray. It was no secret that the guild was rife with corruption. Enough scrip in enough pockets and they would be hunted down by the full might of the Governor-General, and that was a battle with only one winner, no matter how determined Karai was which is why they were standing across the street from the Grey Lord at midnight watching the door. They had agreed that a preemptive strike was the only satisfactory way to conclude this affair. There were two enormous doormen in black suits and coattails framing it, touching the brim of their top hats as various gentry and noblemen came and went in a constant procession of black cabs. While the men wouldn't present a huge obstacle, the entrance was much too public with the constant traffic, and it was a foregone conclusion that there would be more men waiting out of sight should an altercation occur. That sort of thing would be bad for business, and Ward would make sure there was a contingent of guerrillas nearby to squash any unruly behaviour before it was noticed by the clientele. So they prowled around the side and then the rear of the club, where a ramp was excavated from the narrow lane that fed down into the belly of the building. The double door at the base of the ramp was unwatched, but consisted of thick steel that was repainted frequently enough to ward off rust. The frame it was hinged into looked equally impregnable. There was no visible lock mechanism, which was presumably only operable from the inside. Archie, Molly called. Quietly, please, if you would. Her massive shadow sized up the door. His fingers slid across the double surface, across the hinges, and the frame looking for purchase. But the door had been well made and would not even rock in place when he leaned against it. He turned back to Molly with a shrug. Well, noisily then, she said. Archie took a half-step back and lunged at the door. The impact rang all the way back up the alley, and no doubt through the interior of the building as well, but to her satisfaction she noticed the right-hand door had buckled inward, as though hit by a charging rhino. Archie wedged one of his huge hands into the gap and hauled. Muscles bunched and worked across his chest and shoulders, and the door gave out with a horrendous metallic shriek, snapping off at the hinges and toppling over with a bass thump. "'There we go,' she said cheerily. "'Well done, Archie!' They moved through the doorway into a darkened loading area. To their right were stacks of branded barrels and wicker lattices holding hundreds of dusty bottles wrapped in brown paper. To their left was a bare stone wall studded with manacles along its full length. The dark wall was smeared black in places, and Molly didn't need a closer look to recognize it as blood. Animals, she muttered. There was a staircase up ahead on the left, lit by a succession of gas lanterns and directly ahead another double door this time of wood. 
The door flew open and three men burst into the storeroom. Two sported well-cut jackets, starched white cuffs and bowler hats, while the third wore a stained chef's apron and carried a meat cleaver. Employees, the three of them. What the? started the chef until his eyes clamped onto Archie standing to one side and his protestation dwindled into an emasculated wheeze. Her eye turned and asked an unspoken question with her placid, unchanging face. Molly shrugged. They work for him, she said. As far as I'm concerned, they're just as bad. Now just a minute there, girl, the chef barked, pointing in an authoritative manner as the slender woman headed straight for them. She slashed once, twice, and two bowler-hatted heads bounced across the stone floor. I didn't do anything, pleaded the chef, as he backpedaled desperately, his apron misted with fresh blood. Which is why you deserve to die, Karai told him dispassionately, and lopped off his head. Ward was in his office when he heard the boom. It sounded rather like distant cannon fire, but when it echoed up through the floors of the club, he realized it was much closer to home. Marcellus appeared around the varnished door of his office, his expression as casual as ever. I'm checking it out, he said immediately. Do that, Ward said, shifting restlessly in his chair. And find out if Eli is back yet. He's been gone too long for my liking. Marcellus vanished and the door closed soundlessly behind him. Rather than returning to the ledgers on his desk, Ward got up and paced his room slowly. He had an uneasy feeling that whatever catastrophe that had been sweeping slowly through the slum district had somehow rolled all the way up to his door. He wasn't worried so much for himself. He had more than fifty men in the building whose morals and retainers guaranteed they'd follow any order to the letter and ask no questions. But his son still hadn't returned, and that made him nervous. He poured himself a glass of brandy from a crystal decanter, sniffed it, and left the shot on the countertop. It didn't feel right to drink now. He'd wait and share it with his son. Marcellus trotted down the wide carpeted staircase with a half-dozen men in tow. It was probably some idiot servant who'd loosened the chocks on the wrong beer cask and a row of barrels had collapsed, but Marcellus was well paid to be as cautious as his boss in matters of security, and he'd see it with his own eyes before he was satisfied. He became aware of a great quantity of noise on the floor below and hurried his pace. He threw open the stairwell door and stopped short, goggling at the anarchy beyond. The casino was in ruins. The roulette and poker tables had either been tipped over or smashed in half. Chips and cards flew in all directions. A massive burly shape lifted the last intact roulette table and hurled it the length of the room, where it annihilated the split-level bar. Everywhere he looked, he saw the wealthy elite of Malifaux falling over each other to escape a nightmarish stream of creatures that were pouring through from the restaurant kitchens. Twisted corpsemen were leaping on the dignitaries and industrialists and biting them with bone-yellow teeth. A legless trunk with the arms of an ape was throttling Commissioner Berthold up against the walnut railing, his rotund face turning puce, his monocle popping off in surprise. His men ran into the back as they stumbled to a halt as shocked as he was at the sight of a ten-legged spider thing made of human body parts that charged into the fray, kicking wildly while each of its five heads bit the screaming clients. Two unlikely figures were making their way through the chaos. One was a short and lovely Asian woman who he would have assumed worked here were it not for her blood-drenched kimono and the long, gleaming shears she used to casually decapitate Lord Fothering. A taller and less striking woman came behind her, sporting a heavily stained empire-lined dress and a wiry mass of black curls hauled into bunches. She was too pale to be living, and he could sense that she was the catalyst for the tidal wave of fleshy horrors that were decimating the gambling floor. There, he pointed, 
Those two. The men surged into the room, drawing cudgels, knives, and pistols, running at the two intruders. He watched the undead woman take two bullets to her chest, before one of his men drove his knife into her stomach and knocked her back against the shattered bar. An instant later, the massive thing that had wrecked the gaming tables came down on the knife wielder with both gigantic fists and smashed him into a red puddle. The men attacking the diminutive Asian woman somehow fared even worse. Though she never lifted a finger to defend herself, a swirling vortex of ghastly images and blades burst from her and shredded them. The wraith-like shape surged through the room, ripping open abdomens and necks, tearing hunks of flesh from cowering socialites and henchmen alike. The only people left untouched by this howling tempest were the women, huddled in small islands of terror throughout the room. The undead woman clambered to her feet, drew the knife from her stomach and looked at it, shrugged, and dropped it into one of the pockets of her dress. Marcellus ran. Ward was standing with his sword cane drawn when his office door burst open. He had heard the ruckus and the shouting and crashing, and had for a moment thought he'd been double-crossed by the Governor-General, and it was the Guild that was storming his club. When the screaming started, he knew that retribution had finally caught up with him. He had often speculated when something like this might happen. All those hundreds of young women over the last twenty years. Someone would eventually come knocking at his door. He was surprised at how calm he felt as heavy footsteps came up the staircase. It was unlikely he'd live much longer, but at least Eli wasn't here to suffer the same fate. He would succeed his father, and knowing Eli avenge him. He knew enough of the family business to reaffirm contacts with the corridors of power and get things up and running again. He grinned fiercely at the thought that the Grey Lord wouldn't be out of business for long. Surprisingly, it was Marcellus that burst in. Out, he shouted, slamming the door behind him, and started to haul a heavy leather chair across the rug to block it. Out! Get out! This behavior unnerved Ward much more than the sounds from downstairs. He'd worked with Marcellus for fifteen years, and never seen the man lose his composure once. What? he asked, his sword cane wavering with sudden uncertainty. What is it? A huge, seven-fingered hand crunched through the locked door and gripped Marcellus around the middle. His associate emitted a horrendous, ripping belch as the giant hand squeezed, then hauled him out into the corridor, smashing away most of the door and snapping him almost in half in the process. Ward staggered back in shock, knocking the brandy decanter and its silver tray to the floor, where six months' worth of a working man's salary glugged into the shag. Instead of the brutish owner of that huge hand, a slim and very pale woman stepped through the ruined doorway. She wore a shabby antique dress that was more holes than fabric, and scuffed boots that were splattered with blood. She looked around with interest, taking in the rich furnishings. Moments later, a petite Asian woman followed suit. Her silk kimono was a saturated crimson mess, and wisps of errant hair stuck to her cheeks. She carried a huge pair of gardening shears in hands that were red to the elbow. Ward's gaze darted from one woman to the other, but recognized neither. They might have been sisters of some of the captives downstairs, but neither looked old enough to be a parent. Hello, Gart, the pale woman said. He could tell that she was undead. The bullets and knife holes were immediate giveaways, but there was something more indefinable about her, a faint aura of spectral authority that she wore very lightly. He raised the sword cane again, setting his jaw. I know why you're here, so spare me the monologue, he growled. I don't care who you are. Sister, mother, aunt. It doesn't make any difference. I knew this day would come eventually. The pale woman smiled disarmingly. That's nice. Know this, he warned. Your victory won't last long. 
I have connections you wouldn't believe. There has always been a demand for the services I provide, and even without me, the ward legacy will go on. The pale woman applauded sarcastically. Lovely. Oh, and by the ward legacy, I think you mean your son, Eli. Something cold curled in the pit of Garth's stomach. The Asian woman, up to this moment silent and motionless, unslung a fabric sash across her shoulders and threw something heavy onto the plush carpet at his feet. It took Garth a long time to realize he was staring at the severed head of his boy. Oh, he said eventually, struggling to absorb this new development. I should point out that I'm not usually this cruel, the pale woman said, perching herself on the desk. I'd always believed in live and let live, you know. Always tried to find the positive side of every situation. Her voice hardened. But there's no positive side to you, Gart Ward. You're a monster. And for the sakes of the hundreds of lives you destroyed, I can't allow myself the luxury of compassion. Not tonight. The image of Gart's dead son doubled, then tripled. He realized belatedly that he was sobbing. The future he'd always imagined for his boy was gone, dragged down and ruined by these two vengeful harridans. Just get it over with, he said, sinking to his knees to stroke the hair out of his son's open eyes. Oh no, Gart, the woman said, as her small companion slid forward silently on bare feet, the jaws of her shears yawning open. You're too good a job to rush. It was almost dawn, and Molly and Karai stood once more by the river, watching the very first tints of orange starting to reflect off the water. In the end, Karai had killed Ward with a single savage blow that had spun his head clear out of the door and down the staircase. It had occurred to Molly later that nothing Karai could have done to him with a blade could have caused him more pain than the sight of his dead son. It seemed incredible to her that a man who had made a living of kidnapping, enslaving, and murdering women was capable of demonstrating such affection for his own son. Or perhaps he had finally felt firsthand the despair he'd inflicted upon hundreds of parents, sisters, and daughters, and it had disarmed him. Molly was too tired to contemplate it any further. She had dried blood in her hair, her best dress was utterly ruined, and Philip still wasn't talking to her. Karai had been silent since they had left the Grey Lord, and Molly had the suspicion that the redemption she had hoped to find in Vanquishing Ward's empire had eluded her. We should probably lay low for a while, Molly said. The Governor General can't afford to appear connected to the Grey Lord, but there will be repercussions, and we'd be better off somewhere else until it all blows over. Karai said nothing, and Molly marvelled once again at her companion's ability to convey agreement without actually doing anything. You could come and stay with me for a while, she offered, if you wanted. Please do, called a muffled voice from the pram. I need someone to defend me from that crocheting maniac. Oh, fool, you old stick in the mud, Molly said. You look like a little gentleman in that outfit. Karai, would you please inform this wire-haired lunatic that I looked nothing of the sort, the pram retorted testily. If she had even a modicum of talent, she would have realized that for herself. Ignoring this, Molly put a hand on Karai's shoulder. You really would be welcome. 
The little Asian woman looked up with that same placid, infinite gaze, and Molly thought for a second that she was going to dismiss the offer out of hand, or worse still, ignore it completely. Incredibly, a tiny, mischievous smile formed in one corner of her plump mouth. I sew, she said. Molly's eyes lit up. Perfect! You can make him a bonnet with some lace, and maybe a butterfly! No, she could not, cried the indignant pram as Karai's smile widened. They began walking back the way they'd come, with Molly chatting excitedly, when she suddenly stopped dead and grabbed Karai's arm. A little sailor suit, she exclaimed. Philip Toomer's wail echoed the length of the city. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us again next time for more Tales of Malifaux.